0: The modern American church has a a problem with memory loss. There are very important issues that we as the modern American church have forgotten. There is, in my opinion, one area where this is most obvious and is in we have forgotten church history. I see this memory loss in our response to the current culture. Our current culture calls evil good And good, evil. Our current culture, righteousness is seen as odd and wickedness is seen as normal. We see this reversal in the discussions on abortion and in how accepting we all are of corruption and politics. We see it in the growing hostility toward the Christian faith. We see it in the month of June, being dedicated to celebrating sexual immorality. And as these things continue to become more and more normalized, the question we often ask is how can or how will the church continue to exist in a world where evil is called good, good is called evil, righteousness is odd, and wickedness is normal. And there is growing increase, a growing opposition to our faith. That question completely forgets the world the church was born into. Think about the world in the time of Acts chapter 2, when the church was birthed. The religious leaders in Jerusalem had recently murdered the founder of the church by convincing the Romans to crucify him. This was done in part to stop the movement he was trying to start. The religious leaders took up an extreme dislike toward this new movement and started persecuting them almost immediately. Now, while the persecution initially focused on the leaders of the church, it didn't take long for them to start bringing the hurt to the regular, average, ordinary disciples of Christ who were just part of the church. The persecution was so fierce, disciples of Jesus were forced to flee Jerusalem. And yet, these disciples who fled persecution shared the gospel everywhere they went. Now the Greek and the Roman world to which they fled was wretchedly wicked. Sexual immorality was rampant. In fact, many pagan temples employed male and female sacred prostitutes. And the sexual immorality caused by this was seen as an act of worship to various pagan gods. Homosexuality was common and acceptable. Abortion was common and acceptable. The government had near absolute power. Caesar was seen as a god. And emperor worship was mandatory. The Caesars would eventually take an extremely antagonistic view toward the church and heavily persecute them. Disciples of Jesus were burned alive, fed the lions for sport, and tortured to make them deny Jesus. This is the church. This is the world the church was born into. Not only was this the environment the church was born into, but the church thrived at this time. The world's opposition to the church did not stop it and did not hinder it. The modern church has forgotten this. The fact we have forgotten this is seen in the way we seek to engage the culture around us. Generally, the modern American church does not engage the culture in the way the church of Acts engaged the culture. Typically, we seek to engage the culture through worldly means of political power. Now, for many years, this appeared to work in our favor. As the church wielded significant political power. So much so that politicians were forced to pander to us. And corporations capitulated to our demands. But look around. Those things are no more. Those days are all but gone. Something happened this week that that convinced me the church's loss of favor and power in our culture is irreversible. As things are. So here's the story. The L.A. Dodgers were going to have a, a pride event at one of their games because it's June. And everything and everyone must celebrate the LBGTQ community. One of the groups that was invited to their event is called the, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Here's a picture of a couple of the sisters. They are an LBGTQ advocacy group that refers to themselves. These are their words, not mine. A leading edge order of queer and trans nuns. Their motto is a mockery of the words of Jesus. Jesus said, go and sin no more. But these nuns say, go and sin some more. And as you can imagine, various Christian groups protested against their inclusion of the event, and they were uninvited. But then several LBGTQ groups protested their being uninvited. They were re-invited, and an apology was issued for their being uninvited. Think of the significance of this event. This group mocks Christianity in general, and Catholicism specifically. Their motto is a perversion of the words of Jesus, And they were re-invited over the protests of various Christian groups. If this does not convince us of our loss of political power, I don't know what does. However, my reaction to this loss of political power is good riddance. Good riddance to the church being more active in stumping for politicians than evangelizing for Jesus. Good riddance to evil politicians pandering to the church and the church lapping it up like hogs to slop. Good riddance to churches allowing politicians to speak in their pulpits. Good riddance to the church focusing on what Jesus never said we're supposed to focus on. The church today must relearn to do what the church did in the early days. Because the world's Opposition will not end. Not only will the world's opposition not end, but if we do what the early church did, the world's opposition will not hinder or stop the church. How can I be sure of this? Because of the words of Jesus. If you haven't already, open your Bible to Matthew 16. We're going to read verses 13 through 19. When you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. It should be page 747 if you have a pew Bible. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the regions of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower you. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The title of the message this morning is Wake Up. And remember the power of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Father, we are living in unprecedented times for us. Father, in America, we have never lived in a culture that was so affirming of every kind of immorality under the sun. We have never lived in a culture that was so hostile. To the truth of your word and the the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we have not lived in a time where so many professing Christians were willing to to compromise and and conform to the world and, and, and preach perversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, your word is still true. Psalm 2 is still true, that the Lord is in his heaven and he laughs at the nations raging and the people plotting. Your word is still true, that the gates of hell will not overpower the church. So, Father, we're not asking you to change the culture. We're asking you to change us. Father, in the message today, as we look at your word, help us to lay aside the the dead worldly methods that we have tried to engage the culture with, because as we see, it's not working and it never has. It has never really brought change. All of our uh, abandoning your methods and your ways has only led to where we are today. So forgive us. Help us to turn back to the book. Help us to turn back to be disciples of Christ, not disciples of a political party or disciples of a news station. Let your Holy Spirit take your word today and challenge us and convict us and wake us up to the beauty, the power of your church. It is through your church. The nations are one. It is through your church. That cultures are changed. It is through your church that souls are saved and lives are changed. Make us such a church. Do through our church today what you did through the church in Acts then. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we aren't going to take time to do a deep dive in this passage today. We're really going to look at verse 19 or verse 18. Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower you. In fact, we're only really going to focus for the most part of of our time in Matthew on that last part. The gates of hell will not overpower you. Now, when we think about the gates of hell not overpowering the church, typically, We think about this as Jesus protecting the church. We think about it something like this. All the powers of hell attack the church, and Jesus protects the church so it isn't defeated. We take that same view to the book of Acts, and we see a fledgling young church come under some heavy fire. And as the church grew, the persecution increases. The persecution grew to the point disciples of Jesus were losing everything for their faith. Some even lost their life because of their devotion to Christ. Despite the persecution, Jesus protected the church. Then you take this view and you apply it to the book after Acts and up to this day. And you find that throughout history, various groups and governments have tried to exterminate the church. Despite their best efforts to destroy the church, Jesus protected the church and it still goes. The cycle just continues on and on and on. And while this is a a comforting thought, and, and while it is true to an extent, it is an incomplete picture of what we see here. I mean, let me just ask you a question. Probably none of us are experts in siege warfare, but we've seen movies. Let me ask you a question. Are gates offensive weapons or are they defensive weapons? When soldiers go into battle, do they grab a gate and charge the enemy? Or are gates on fortresses to protect from the enemy? Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive weapons. Therefore, Jesus is not merely talking about defending the church against the attacks of hell. The picture in Matthew 16 is not a picture of a poor, pitiful church. Just hunkering down, trying to mind its own business. And the mean old devil keeps attacking it so Jesus has to protect it. This isn't a picture of the church being in a defensive position. It's a picture of the church being in an offensive position. The church in this picture is the one doing the attacking. The church is doing an all-out assault on the strongholds of hell. And the church is winning. The church is winning because Jesus is working in and through and for His church. Jesus will build His church. And He built His church by plundering hell to populate heaven. And as Jesus does this, the gates of hell cannot stop it. Think about the earthly ministry of Jesus. Can you think of any one time where He was in a defensive position? He wasn't. He was always on the offense. He always went to where the demons were. And they always bowed before His mastery. He sent the disciples to preach the gospel. And when they came back, Jesus said He saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. That's not defensive. That's offensive. That's going on the attack. Think about the church in the book of Acts. Is there ever a time where they were in a defensive posture? There's not. They were always on the move. They were always on the attack. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved. Those 3,000 people were in the grips of the enemy, blinded to the truth, till Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they repented of their sins, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved. Jesus worked through His church on that first day, to snatch them from the snare of the devil, he turned them into fully devoted disciples of Christ who went to the ends of the earth, plundering hell for the sake of the kingdom. Even as those new disciples were persecuted and forced to flee their home, they went on the attack. God's word says everywhere they went, they were preaching about Jesus. They left Jerusalem having lost everything and wherever they landed, they preached and when they preached Jesus people repented of their sins people believed in Jesus and they were saved the early church went through the known world attacking Satan's strongholds and freeing those he was holding hostage they did it with zero political influence they did it with zero political power they did it with zero politicians on their team. They did it with merely the gospel and the power of Christ. And those disciples turned the world upside down, is what the inspired text tells us. We find examples of this all throughout God's Word, but there's one particular we're going to spend the rest of our time in this morning looking at. So turn to Acts 19. And I'll read the first ten verses just to give you the picture of what's happened. And then we'll just kind of jump around throughout the chapter. It says, Now it happened, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed to the upper country and came to Ephesus, found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, On the contrary, we didn't even hear there was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, what then were you baptized? And they said, In John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. there were about twelve men in all. And they entered the synagogue, continued speaking out boldly for three months. Having discussions persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, before the people... He withdrew from them, took the disciples away with him and had discussions daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Ephesus was a place filled with deep immorality. It was filled with all manner of sexual immorality that we've talked about earlier. It was filled with all manner of idolatry. It was filled with witchcraft, as we'll see later in the chapter. And Paul went into this dark city. Armed with nothing other than the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, souls were saved, a church was formed. And Jesus began to work through this church. He empowered his church to do many things like look at verse 17. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. What Jesus was doing through the church magnified His name. Not just among the church, but among all the people the region. The the power of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the the life and the ministry of the disciples of Jesus demonstrated to this lost and dying world that, that Jesus was real and Jesus was awesome. Look at verse 19. And many of those who practice magic Brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the price of the books and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Prior to the gospel going there, these people were demonically influenced through witchcraft. Jesus worked through the church. He broke Satan's stronghold in their life. Delivered them from that bondage. So much so that they, they burned the books. Just tossed them in the fire and got rid of them. Because nobody ought to have that kind of evil in their home. Look at verse 20. The Word of the Lord was growing and prevailing. What a statement. I mean, think about... Let's just take a second. How long has it been since we in the American church could say the Word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily in our midst? Have any of us ever seen a movement like this? Have any of us ever seen the Word of the Lord... Grow and prevail mightily in people's lives and hearts. Have we seen. God's word spread so rapidly. That it was delivering people from immorality and idolatry and witchcraft. That when people had problems. Rather than turning to the world for answers. They turned to the word of God and said what did God say. Have any of us seen. Something like this in our lives. My favorite, my favorite result is found in verse 24 through 27. Look at that. A man named Demetrius, silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing considerable business to the craftsmen. He gathered these men together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable number of people saying God's made with hands are not God's at all. Not only that, there is a danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and all the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. So many people... Had been saved. And become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. That it affected the prophets of the idol makers. Now, not because there was like an official boycott. Or not because there was a, a, a some sort of a political move that had made it illegal to buy idols. That wasn't what happened. Instead, so many people were saved and just threw them away. And stopped buying them. That they were losing money. Not only were they not buying them. They weren't going to the temple. And the temple was losing money. They were afraid. They were about to go from extremely wealthy men to poor men. Just because of the church. Not because of politics. Not because of laws. Not because of scheming. But because the church being the church. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Was emptying them of their victims. Those who profited from human slavery to sin became nervous about the change taking place in their community through the gospel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have any of us ever seen anything like that in, in any community we've ever lived in? The gospel spread so rapidly, makes such changes. That people who profited from human slavery to sin were losing business and were afraid and unhappy about it. Well, that happened in the book of Acts. But it's not just a story to go, wow, that was great then. The reality is, what Jesus did through his church then, Jesus does through his church now. Jesus hasn't changed. He is still the God who could do all of these things in our midst and through our church, in our day. The difference isn't that the world has changed. The world has always been evil. People's hearts have always been hard. They've always been blinded to the gospel. The change has happened in us. We Have abandoned God's methods. And we have adopted the world's methods. And in doing so we have lost the genuine power. To make a difference in our world around us. So what would it look like if we were to go back to the Bible as it were. So Jesus would do now what he did then. Well I don't believe in Anything that would be like 10 steps or anything like that. But I do believe there are principles that we see in this passage. That if applied by us. Would enable us to see Jesus do through his church now what he did through his church then. So here there are three principles. There was more, but we don't have time for more. Just three. Number one, principle one, we must share the gospel. Verse 8, he entered the synagogue, speaking out boldly for three months, having discussions, persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is what he did. Paul's focus was on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel and then he preached it some more. First, he preached it for three months in the synagogue. And then when they didn't like him there, he took the disciples. He went to somewhere else. And for two years, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reminds me of what he said in the Corinthians, uh, about determining to know nothing among them save Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew there was only one message that would make an eternal difference in the lives of those he was trying to reach. And that one message was the gospel of the Jesus Christ. The gospel centers on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the gospel isn't just truth in general. The gospel is narrow and specific. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel isn't a message about a guy named Jesus who lived a long time ago, but was tragically killed by an oppressive religious establishment. No, the gospel is about Jesus, the Son of the living God who came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead on the third day to prove all he had said was true. If we don't clearly explain the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we, we haven't shared the gospel. Now, part of explaining the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is explaining that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we need Jesus? I mean, what's the point? Jesus died for what? Why? Well, that's where sin comes in. We have to explain that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People must understand that they have sinned against a holy God and are justly condemned for their sin. If they do not understand this. They will never understand the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. They will never see why they need a Savior. They must understand Jesus died to pay their penalty for their sin. For it's only when we understand our guilt do we see our need for salvation. If people do not understand Jesus died for their sin, they do not understand the gospel if people do not believe that Jesus died for their sin, they do not believe the gospel. And if we haven't talked about their sin and been clear about the fact Jesus died for their sin, then we have not shared the gospel. Only the gospel has the power to save souls and change lives. Now this makes it good news. It makes it the good news. So we must know it. We must believe it and we must share it if we want to see Jesus do in his church now what he did through his church then. So principle one, share the gospel. Principle two, we got to work hard. Verse 9 and 10. But some were becoming hardened, disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. And he withdrew from them, took the disciples away with him, and had discussions daily in the school of... Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, studying verse really 8, 9, and 10, it reveals more hard work than you might see at a casual glance. Paul, at this time, was what we would call an unsupported missionary. In fact, in Free Will Baptist, we actually technically call it a tent-making missionary because of Paul. Now, as Free Will Baptists, typically when we send out missionaries overseas, what we do is... We make sure they have enough funds and enough people pledging to give to them that when they go to whatever international field they're going to serve on, that they are fully supported. And they can give their lives and focus exclusively on reaching people for Jesus. But Paul didn't have that kind of support. In a later meeting with the Ephesian elders, he mentioned that he worked to provide for his own needs. Now Paul's trade, we know from God's Word, was a tent maker. And according to historical records, the way things worked at Ephesus was people would work from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Then from 11 a.m. to 4 4 p.m., they had a midday siesta. Then they went back to work at 4 p.m. and worked until 9.30 p.m. So from what we would gather from this, the Apostle Paul's preaching, the lecture house of Tyrannus, was during the siesta time. So Paul's day would look something like this. He would go out and make tents from 7 to 11 in the morning. At 11 to 4, he would gather and he would teach about Jesus. From 4 to 9.30, he would make tents. And this was six days a week for two years. That's a lot of work. But it wasn't just Paul who worked this hard. We know this for two reasons. First, Paul only preached for five hours a day because there were people... There to listen. He didn't shout and holler to an empty room. There were people gathered together that he would share. So many in Ephesus had a schedule that went like this. From 7 to 11, they they went to work and did whatever they did. Then from 11 to 4, they went to church. And then from 4 to 9.30, they went back to work. Six days a week for about two years. It's a lot of hard work. But they worked more than just in coming to church. Because in verse 10, it says... That all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now there's little chance everybody or all that lived in Asia made it to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and was able to hear the Apostle Paul speak. More likely what happened was something like this. The Ephesian people went to work at 7 to 11. And while they worked, they talked about this Bible study they were a part of on their lunch break. They talked about the Jesus they were learning about, and they invited people to come with them. And then, at 11 to 4, they went to the Bible study to learn more about this amazing Jesus. And then from 4 to 9.30, they went back to work and began to tell their co-workers about all this new stuff they had learned about this amazing Jesus. That's just a lot of work by everybody involved. The necessity of hard work should make sense to us. I mean, when we see what's going on in this chapter, I mean, we're talking about seeing souls saved and lives changed. That's hard work to see that dug out in people's lives. Seeing captives set free from, from the enemy's encroachment into their lives. Seeing prodigals who have all manner of issues that they're dealing with brought back home. Families restored. Entire communities Transformed. I mean, that sounds like a lot of hard work because it is. Hard work is a non-negotiable part of what it takes to see Jesus do in his church now what he did through his church then. In Colossians 1, Paul said he labored and strived to accomplish these things. The words used for labor and strive, it, it pictured working to exhaustion and beyond. Seeing Jesus work through his church now and do now what he did then, it's not going to be convenient or easy for any of us who want to see those things happen. The things Jesus wants to do in his church and through his church and for his church are big things. And they require just an awful lot of hard work from everyone involved. So principle one, we must share the gospel. Principle two, we must work hard. Principle three, we must be empowered. There's four principles. (laughs) I lied. Uh, Principle three, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. There were initially like six, so it's still shorter than what I had planned. Uh, There was preaching. There was power. Right? We We see throughout this chapter that evil spirits were cast out of people. Um, The power of the Holy Spirit was present to ensure everyone knew Paul was legit. The people of Ephesus, because of the witchcraft that was there, they were no strangers to signs and wonders. The demon empowered sorcerers and witches could do magic tricks. The works the Holy Spirit did through Paul testified to the reality of Paul's message and to the reality of Paul's Jesus. The signs and wonders the Holy Spirit did through Paul confirmed the message of the gospel as true. This was part of what caused people to turn to Jesus. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit just as much as Paul did, just as much as they did. Yes, Colossians 1 tells us they, he labored and he strived, but it also tells us he did it through the work, through his power, which worked in him mightily that the hope-filled truth for us to cling to is that God never tells us to do anything without giving us the power to do it. God will always enable us to do whatever it is He wants us to do. Holy Spirit will empower us to do everything we've talked about thus far and everything we're going to talk about. Holy Spirit being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led and Spirit-empowered, is, it is is a non-negotiable. We can't can't be like the disciples when Paul arrived who said, we've not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. We can't be that way. We have to know who He is, what He does, how He works, seek Him to be filled and empowered and led. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit is a non-negotiable if we're going to experience Jesus doing in His church now what He did through His church then. And then the last principle, principle four. We must focus on Jesus. Paul preached the gospel and he kept the centrality of Jesus before the people. One of my favorite parts of the story is in verse 13 through 16. And what we see is uh, Paul had such a focus on Jesus that even those who had not believed in Jesus and received Jesus sought to use the name and the power of Jesus. Look at verse 13. Well, verse 12. Uh, Verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs for aprons even carried from his body to the sick diseases left them and evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I order you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, doing this. But the evil spirits responded and said, Recognize Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? And then the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and bleeding. Now this story, while somewhat humorous about them having to leave naked and bleeding, it does show the difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. When those who only knew about Jesus tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, they left naked and bleeding. That's a high level of fail. I'm not sure there's any coming back from having to flee a place naked and bleeding. But we also see in verse 17 that this became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them in the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now this, I think, is an interesting into the story. Because what we might think is, wait, they used the name of Jesus and they were overpowered and fled in shame. And they, people would come to the conclusion, your Jesus is kind of weak. That's not what they did. They didn't blame Jesus for these guys failing. They blamed the guys. Paul's focus on Jesus was so intense. That even those who didn't believe in Jesus could tell the difference between those who knew Jesus and those who merely know about Jesus. I believe part of the reason for this goes back to their familiarity with evil spirits and signs and wonders. In sorcery and worship of these false gods, the power was in the words, the incantation, the inflection of the voice. Sorcery is about calling upon the right God at the right time using the right words. Uh, with the, the right inflection in your voice. But having a personal intimate knowledge of the God wasn't important. The instance in verses 13 through 16 demonstrated Jesus was different. He couldn't be controlled. He couldn't be manipulated. He couldn't be used for personal profit. The power was in Jesus. Not in the words that you used. Paul's focus on Jesus caused them to see there was a difference between Jesus and the false gods they already knew about. We, too, must focus on Jesus. That is the great need of our day. Not our politics. Not our standards. Not our preferences. Not even our morality. The world does not need those things from us. They need our Jesus. Now this isn't to say that those things are unimportant. And that they don't flow out of our faith in Jesus. They do. But they're secondary. People can get our politics right, whatever that looks like, in our mind. But if they miss Jesus, they still go to hell when they die. People can get our morality right, whatever that looks like, in our mind. But if they miss Jesus, they still go to hell when they die. When we focus on things other than Jesus, we make it seem as if those are the issue. Those are preeminent. And they're not. Jesus is. We cannot get things backward and put other things over Jesus and focus on other things instead of Jesus and expect to experience Jesus doing through His church now what He did through His church then. If anything, I think the American church, the modern American church, has had it backwards for many, many years. And the condition of the church, the morality of the nation, is a reflection of how well that has worked in our favor. The church will only experience Jesus doing now what he did then. If we focus on Jesus. Because everything, everything. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. What Jesus did through His church then, He does through His church now. I believe this. The core of my being, I believe this. I believe it because God's Word says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe Jesus still works through His church to do the things now that He did then. I believe Jesus intends to work in His church now to save the lost, to restore the prodigal, to set captives free, to encourage the discouraged, uh, strengthen the weak, bind up broken hearts, sanctify saints, reconcile ruptured relationships, and give hope to the hopeless. I not only believe this, uh, about Jesus doing it in the church universal somewhere out there. I believe Jesus intends to do this through our church as well. He has worked through our church in the past to do many good things. To help people, to change lives, to make eternally significant differences in lives and families and peoples. And I believe he intends to do those things today. I believe what lies ahead of us is greater than what lies behind us regardless of of what happens on the news or in the politics or in anything else because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has promised. And I hope you believe this as well. But I want to go back to Matthew 16. You don't have to turn there. I just want to end with a question. Jesus asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they gave lots of answers. I could ask you, who, who do the people around you say that Jesus is? And we all probably have an idea who various people in our lives might say Jesus is. But then Jesus got to the nitty gritty. Who do you yourselves say that I am? That's the question I want to leave you with today. Who do you say that He is? As we've seen from the seven sons of Sceva, secondhand knowledge of Jesus Isn't enough. Not only does the second hand knowledge of Jesus not empower us to overcome evil spirits, it doesn't save our souls. We must have that first hand knowledge that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Savior. That's where everything has to begin. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that He is? And in what ways, if you say He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in what ways does your life testify of this? What ways does my life testify of this? If we have never made the personal decision to surrender our lives to Christ, this is where everything has to begin. We must know Him personally. We must choose to repent of our sins. We must choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. We recognize that God is right and we're wrong. Now, God is right and we're wrong (coughs) about all number of issues, but specifically about sin. For most people, we don't believe our sin is significant. But God does. God does believe our sin is significant. God does believe our sin is serious. That our sin is worthy of judgment and condemnation. He does believe that our sin is our fault and it's against Him. And guess what? He's right. And if we believe anything else, we're wrong. And we need to repent. God is also right about salvation. Salvation isn't in good morals. About salvation isn't in being a good person. Salvation isn't found in being a productive member of society. It's not found in being a good spouse, a good parent. It's not found in voting the right way or living the right way. It is found in Christ alone. That's what God says. And God's right. And if you believe anything else saves you, you're wrong. And you must repent of that. And that sort of repentance, it leads to belief. But it's not belief in general. There is a God out there somewhere. That doesn't save. It's not even belief that there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died and maybe rose again. That doesn't save. It is a very narrow and specific belief that Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. And because of Jesus, I can be saved and that my hope and my faith is in Jesus alone. Listen, if your faith... For salvation, your hope for salvation is in anything but Jesus. You are not saved. You must repent of your false beliefs. You must embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the natural result of that is that we would begin to live for Jesus. How could we not? When we've done our own thing all these years, we were wrong. He was right. The one who gave his life for us, how could we not give our lives for him in return? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he those things to you? My friend, if he's not, you must turn to him today. That is your deepest and most desperate need. I want you to stand.